Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the ASC podcast. Today's topic is the newest ASC and ASCCP guidelines. Um, with Diane Davey and me, I'm Michelle Smith, and I'll just tell you a little bit about ourselves before we dive into all of these new guidelines. Diane Davey is the chair of the American Society of Cytopathology Awards Committee. She's a member of the ASC Foundation Board and past president's advisory committee. She was the president of the American Society of Cytopathology in 2001 and two. And she's the ASC representative to the Cytopathology Education and Technology Consortium. She is a board member for the Florida Society of Pathologists and a delegate to the College of American Pathologists House of Delegates. She's a past president and trustee of the American Board of Pathology and certifying board for pathologists. Diane served as moderator for the National Cancer Institute's Bethesda 2001 workshop for cervical cytology terminology. And she's done so much, I'm gonna keep going on. Um, she has served on several committees of the American Society for Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology and has been a society representative for guidelines in cervical cancer. So we do have the guru here um, to talk today. Um, she's been an advisor for both the FDA and the NCI and serves as editorial boards for, on three journals. She, her research efforts have focused on cyto cervical cytology and quality improvement efforts in the laboratory, including uniform reporting terminology, new cytology laboratory technologies, laboratory and patient management guidelines, and also educational um, and competency assessments. And as for me, um, I'm Michelle Smith. I'm on the executive board of the ASC as a cytotechnology member. Um, I'm also the past president of the ASCT. For the ASC, I also um, work with the Coordinating Council for Clinical Laboratory Workforce. My other past kind of lives have been working with ASCP as the scholarship um, committee and the chair there. I just stepped down from that one. and. Um, and I'm also the ASCT commissioner to KHEP as part of the CPRC, which is the Cytology Program Resource Committee. Um, I've worked in quite a few states, which is different than a lot of people in as cytotechnologists. I've worked in Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, and New York, and worked in different laboratories from small community hospitals to large teaching laboratories and um, private labs that service small communities. I've also worked in government-based laboratories where our main um, patient focus was the uninsured and underinsured women and men um, of Wisconsin. Um, my interests include um, cervical screening for underserved populations, education. When um, one of the last things that we worked on when I was um, with the state lab was a digital colposcopy library that we worked with for clinicians and cytopathology professionals, which kind of ties in with what we're gonna talk about today of um, looking at the treatment practices. I've always been a bit of a regulatory freak and um, kind of had to purchase my first CFR back in 91 um, when it was only on paper. So um, 
that's a little bit of my um, story. I think I'll start off with talking about when I was a student um, in cytology school was the year the Wall Street Journal article came out. So I had one teacher that came in and said, you might as well all go home. There will be no more pap smears. And here we are talking about them today. So that's um, over 30 years ago. Um, so from then on, um, I think I'm gonna start the kind of talk about that way back machine, right, Diane? And um, talking about when we were promoting annual pap tests, um, starting with really early ages for adolescents and how we have evolved into this new, um, these new guidelines and all of the factors that kind of come to play. So can um, you talk a little bit about kind of the history and, and how the American Cancer Society has been a promoter of all of this? Thanks, Michelle. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the history. And I got involved in cytology probably just a little bit earlier than, than you, but I remember when CLIA 88 passed and that's when I first got involved with College of American Pathologists Committee and then later on with uh, other groups. So the American Cancer Society has been a major promoter of the PAP test. This started in 1945, so it's now over 75 years ago. It was one of the first major efforts of the American Cancer Society and the early presidents and leadership. Um, it's been, the PAP test has been the most successful cancer screening test ever. And I wanna sure. make sure everyone remembers that in terms of uh, cervical cancer mortality and morbidity in the places where it's been used widely. So for many years, the American Cancer Society promoted annual PAP tests. Then as we saw new technologies introduced, including first liquid-based preparations you know, later on we saw HPV testing. We went to a little bit less frequent screening. So we first started seeing the pap test move to every two or three years. Then when HPV co-testing was first approved by the FDA in I think it was around 2003, we saw a promotion of co-testing. You could still do pap tests, but the frequency was a little bit less than that annual pap test, which was first promoted. Right. So what do you think are like the two or three major changes that the American um, Cancer Society has promoted recently with these guidelines? So the biggest change that I see, well, let's talk about the first one. The first one is the move away from PAP tests to really using HPV primary screening alone. So this is being promoted now as every five years because we... They, they understand that the HPV primary screening platforms that are approved by the FDA are not widely available. There's still an option to do co-testing that is PAPS and HPV together every five years or PAP screening every three years. There's only two approved platforms in the United States now, that's a BD on Clarity and the Roche-Cobos. But we know that the Hologic Aptima test is very widely used. All of these yeah. tests have really good performance. Absolutely, but they're not all they're not all widely available. So they still the American Cancer Society understands more education outreach are going to be needed, but they're really signaling a change. The other big change I wanted to bring up is the move 
to start screening at age 25 years. There is an exception for higher risk individuals and those with HIV or immunosuppression. And we can talk a bit more about that later if you like. Okay. There's no big difference in whether you've had the HPV vaccine right now. Um, we don't have complete rollout of the vaccine. Right. Um, but we are starting to see some impact. There's no change in terms of when you stop screening and also after hysterectomy, there's no change in that. But I, even though there's a move to HPV primary screening, I would note that the guidelines recommend that if the HPV primary screen is positive, you do reflex cytology at that point. Mm -hmm. So kind of the reverse of how we started with HPV right, testing, right? right? So. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about access to screening. And this is going to be because it's dear to my heart, I think, um, working with having worked with uninsured women um, for so very long. Um, and is that going to be kind of an issue with when we go to this, you know, different model? And um, I think that in the U.S., we have very different healthcare system here. And I know that a lot of the models were based on the Kaiser group um, and, and some of the studies that were done in Europe, um, but it's very different here. I know that with the Affordable Care Act, PAP tests were, you know, are part of that, that um, availability for women, um, but treatment is a different story. So I was just wondering if we can talk a little bit about um, access for women in um, the United States. Yeah, I agree, Michelle. I think we have opportunistic screening in the United States. We don't have organized screening. In some of these countries where HPV primary screening is being rolled out, they have callbacks. They have, you know, sort of nationalized records. Mm -hmm. Women here in the United States may circle in and out of having access to healthcare coverage. They don't know what their results are. They may go to different providers. Um, I'm concerned that with women going to different systems, there could be there could be lack of availability, not only to the primary screen, but to the follow-up. I'm concerned mm -hmm. that some carriers may no longer cover co-testing. They may only cover one test alone. Yeah, I'm concerned about that as well. Yeah. Um, so, and we, we talked about that new onset of screening at age 25 with less frequency. Um, why not look at kind of the onset of sexual activity? Um, I think that we need to continue to advocate for women still about that annual visit, because that's one of the things that, you know, back when I started, it was those annual PAPs and the link to the annual visit and other things that that we do. And, and I know that a lot of women have when birth control and pap tests were no longer linked to that annual visit, they're also not going to see their primary care annually for things that they might need. Um, but and then we kind of talk about screening a lot, but we need to also re remind women to be aware of and listen to their bodies, right? And that um, when something is off, whether it's abnormal discharge or bleeding or bloating, that these are all signs and symptoms that that might put them not in that screening category anymore. And that could happen possibly at any age, obviously, you know, for we're just talking about the screening PAP right now and screening HPV testing. But, but I think that, that we have an opportunity to always talk about those other signs and symptoms. 
Um, I agree, Michelle. Um, we there's a lot of education needed for women. Yeah. So you know, the CDC is is still recommending young women, particularly, they get screened for other sexually transmitted infections. For example, mm -hmm. gonorrhea and chlamydia in young ages. Women who are pregnant need to get screened for HIV, for syphilis, hepatitis, those things. There's varying um, STI or sexually transmitted infection recommendations that the CDC is still putting out that are very important. When you get a little bit older, um, maybe in, in our age group, things like <laughs> blood pressure, yeah. Screening for diabetes, thyroid diseases get important. So there's a lot of education and outreach that are, that's needed. Now, I also remember I was at University of Kentucky for almost 20 years before moving to Florida. And right. we had a very high risk population. We saw a lot of high grade squamous and trepidial lesions in mm -hmm. teenagers and young adults. However, invasive cancers quite rare in this age group and not all high grade lesions progress. Certainly uh, a lot of them will regress or stay the same. The exactly. idea with the American Cancer Society guidelines is you're gonna, you're gonna screen women at age 25 before uh, a precursor lesion turns into cancer. And a lot of those HPV infections in young women go away on their own. So will we miss a few women? It's possible that a few women will be missed with starting screening at age 25, but they're gonna be extremely rare. Right, right. So I think that um, talking about the STIs, um, I'm just gonna give a little shout out that it's April right now when we're giving this um, talk and that it is um, the get yourself tested um, month of awareness. So just a little shout out there. Um, and I'm going to circle back a little bit about the awareness part of this again with um, immunosuppressed women and what that, how those changes are for um, the guidelines. Right. So there are different guidelines. The American Cancer Society has started to break out higher risk women. So they're not really covered, but they do uh, refer to other guidelines. So, for example, a woman diagnosed with HIV infection or immunosuppression from an organ transplant would still start getting cervical cancer screening usually around an eight, a year after they have onset of sexual activity or exposure. Mm -hmm. They may get it annually for a while and then a little bit less frequency. Um, there's a, a little bit less frequently. There's also calls for doing colposcopy earlier. You may not right. follow a woman uh, quite like you do with the general um, management guidelines. You may do colposco colposcopy earlier on an immunosuppressed woman. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I remember one of the first cases I had, it was um, a young woman who had pretty significant disease and we couldn't figure it out. I think she was 18, but um, she was a kidney transplant patient. And that was, you know, kind of a aha moment that that it, something different was happening for her. That was back in the 90s though. So, um, and we talked about, you know, we started with the annual PAPs and then we we're talking about co-testing and the idea of HPV testing alone. Um, do you have any concerns about relying on um, primary HPV only? Um, and, 
and right, right. we might I, be missing? <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a lot of literature accumulating on this, you know, and some of it in the United States. So we know that HPV testing is not perfect. There's false negatives. I think some people think it's a magic bullet. <laughs> well, it is. Well, one single HPV test is, is definitely has good sensitivity and probably superior to the pap test. In many cases, there are false negatives. We don't understand if it's technical or if it's specimen adequacy, but it's probably around 10% in a lot of studies. And it may be even higher for invasive cancers I don't know if that's because the HPV is integrated, that the samples aren't quite as good. So um, we do see older women who are diagnosed with invasive cancer who appear to have a false negative HPV test. I'm also concerned about the absence of morphology. You know, I, mm -hmm. with the Bethesda system, I was the specimen <laughs> adequacy queen. I was moderator for that section, Dr. Birdsong and I wrote the most recent chapter in the Bethesda Atlas. And we don't see we don't see whether the sample is collected from an appropriate place. It doesn't. The test just tests for DNA. They don't test for whether it's uh, cervical epithelium or not. And right. you know, there's specimen adequacy issues with the Pap test. But yep. I feel I feel more comfortable. I grew up with the conventional Pap smear. Um, mm -hmm. There is also a lot of concerns about you know, the fact that the, what, what were they testing for? Well, most of the trials done look at CIN3 and right. cancers as an endpoint. So mm -hmm. CIN3 is not invasive cancer. As we mentioned, CIN3 a lot of times does not progress. It just stays there or it may regress on its own. Yep. So what are we trying to prevent? We're trying to cut back on cervical cancer mortality. The precursor lesions are important, but that's not really the end result. And there's not that many studies really showing any superiority for HPV primary screening over pap tests in terms of prevention of invasive cancer. And we really don't know what the long-term mortality changes are going to be. Um, there was a study in Finland, for example, that failed to show that HPV testing was superior to PAP tests in terms of prevention of invasive cancers. So, mm -hmm. you know, we'd, I'd really like to see more studies accumulate in the United States and looking at invasive cancers and mortality. Yeah, and I think also, you know, that endpoint, that idea of the endpoint of, of CIN3, I think as a cytotech, we always feel that the PAP test endpoint was ASCUS. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> and that's a much different, you know, we all know that trying to do the ASCUS is way different than than finding a CIN3 or a H cell, right? So, but I do remember that study from Finland. It was quite interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit about how this primary HPV testing might work in a workflow. You know, you and I have gone from those annual conventional PAPs that were all air dried anyway, but, um, and then to the reflex HPV, to co-testing, to this big smorgasbord. Um, and I am kind of concerned of how the labs might be able to handle this. And I will say right now that my bias is that HPV testing belongs in the cytology lab, but that's my bias. Um, <laughs> and I know that it doesn't always happen. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about what the workflow might look like um, 
for all of the co-testing versus HPV primary? Well, obviously the ideal situation is where, is if, if you do do the HPV testing in your lab, because then the splitting of samples is not so much a concern. So let's take exactly. the scenario like I'm in. I'm, I practice now at the Orlando VA and um, there we don't have a large enough volume of HPV testing, so we send it out. So right now we do the PAP first and then send out sample for HPV co-testing mm-hmm. or, you know, or as a reflex. And what we would have to do is first, we would have to shift to a different platform that was FDA approved. And then we'd have to split the sample upfront before we send it out. Right. But it's also gonna be true in you know bigger labs where a lot of times, sometimes the HPV testing is done in another section of the laboratory, perhaps across town. Mm-hmm. You know, It could be all sorts of different ways, but splitting that sample and saving it is gonna be an issue. Some labs that aren't doing that many pap tests could just choose to send everything out. True. And I do worry about that. Because mm-hmm. look, if you are a relative if you're doing a reasonable volume so you can keep your skills up, yeah. but you say, well, we're not going to be doing that much. We'll just we'll just send everything out and the commercial laboratory can do the cytology triage, then you've lost the opportunity to do cytohistologic correlation, which I think is a very, very important quality parameter, being able to look at the PAP and biopsy together. So I worry about all of those issues. And and, you you may have more experience where you're working now, Michelle. Actually, um, yeah, I kind of have morphed out of the practice a little bit. I keep tabs on it. Um, just because that's who I am. But um, what's interesting to me is my kind of moved over to a little bit of the molecular side of things. Um, So seeing um, how HPV, the scope of the test and the methods behind it and the platforms behind it, um, and, and seeing where all of the kind of errors could be made. Like you said, it's not 100% accurate all the time and 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 user error still happens so you know we talk about user error so much with the pap test right there's user error in all tests and and that's something to think about and i do i absolutely agree with the whole histocytal correlation being missed um once if this has to be split up in any way and i'm very much concerned about that as well um So let's see. So I would ask, I mean, I think that we're kind of saying here that we think that the co-testing model at this time for most women seems to be um, the way to go because we're, you have that morphology, you have um, the PAP, the HPV part and the PAP test kind of coming together. Um, Do you have anything else that you'd like to kind of talk about in terms of um, what you would like to see as kind of the, the best model for right now? We know it's evolving, obviously. Right. Well, the American Cancer Society has definitely uh, signaled the shift. Mm-hmm. And, but they are reaching out to groups. I was on a call with many other cytology uh, specialists in this area um, with uh, some of the individual, one of the individuals of the American Cancer Society who was the lead author. And she definitely recognizes a need for outreach and education. Mm-hmm. And one of the things brought up on that call was if you have women who are not screened very frequently, 
right. and maybe an exit of screening, maybe it's good to get a co-test. And there, there was some discussion, maybe there will be some exceptions. Um, you know, one of the concerns I had when you look through some of these trials is that it looks like, is the HPV test just as sensitive all throughout a woman's screening lifetime? And some of the studies seem to imply that maybe it wasn't quite as good in older women. And some of the older women who were perhaps had an established cancer who hadn't been screened very frequently, maybe there's a few more um, cancers missed. It may be the sampling technique. It may be the fact that HPV is harder to detect. But I would certainly like to see women who exit screening having a co-test. That's one example. Mm -hmm. Yep. I agree with that. And I think that, you know, kind of that goes back to the access right? Mm -hmm. um, and when we were, you know, if we're at this five-year mark, what happens if women are pushing that to their, that their screening is being every seven years or every six and a half years or every eight or nine years? I mean, and that's the one thing that as we gather the data, and that's what I really like about these new guidelines is the kind of the data that did come about in terms of risk. So I think I'm going to shift my questions a little bit to the ASCCP guidelines, which always seem so complex um, because they are. Um, I think the newest guidelines, um, we, how can we maybe help cytopathology professionals and clinical professionals um, understand how this impacts um, our roles? Right, um, so the major points to emphasize with the ASCCP guidelines, you know, I think one of the big things, if you remember that management is based on equal follow-up or equal management for equal risk. So it's a risk-based right. approach. They're really moving like a lot of areas of medicine to a personalized approach based yeah. on your history and what's going on, your age and so forth. That's why it's gonna be more and more important to use their app, which they have. I have it on my phone um, you can, there's also a free web-based application. You have to put in your email and just acknowledge some things. I have um, both of them available. And the guidelines really concentrate on your risk based on HPV testing, but they do acknowledge the role of cytology to help drive management. There's also more discussion on how genotyping is used. We've seen it mm -hmm. used for PAP negative HPV positive over the years, but there's new emphasis on other times that it's helpful. And I do want to emphasize it's meant for places like the United States, not for low resource settings. Right. And it really doesn't apply to other HPV related cancers, you know, vaginal, mm -hmm. oral, anal, you know, I, I think there'll be probably- Not yet, right. <laughs> yeah. But that's a little bit beyond what we're talking about today. Absolutely. So, and I really like, I mean, the guidelines have always been based on risk, um, but these newest seems, these newest guidelines to me seem to be taking that to another level, especially with those treatment guidelines that came um, about. So let's talk a little bit about um, the risk parts and the percentages, I guess. Right, yeah, so they're looking at the five-year risk of a high-grade lesion, and they used a lot of the Kaiser data mm -hmm. on some simulations, so that was really used a lot in developing these. So let's take some examples. If you take the very lowest risk, that's for routine screening. So that's less than 0.015%. 
uh, a risk of CIN three, which would be here, you know, at five years. So that would be routine screening. Then if you're slightly above that, um, and the numbers are 0 0.015 <laughs> to 0.055%, then you go to a three-year surveillance. So what's a good example of that? That's a woman who has ascus on her pap test, but is HPV negative. Right. So that would be a three-year. One year we're going to see quite a few examples of, and that's um, above 0.55% up to 4%. And that would be a one-year callback. So what would be an example of that? Well, we see cytology negative, HPV positive, and those are the ones, the high-risk HPVs that haven't been genotyped. If they're genotyped and you're 16 or 18 positive, the recommendation is right to go right to colposcopy. Yep. But assuming you don't, you either don't have that available, or it's another high-risk type. Another good example is a woman with a low-grade lesion, which mm -hmm. is HPV negative. Now, how can low-grade lesions be HPV negative? Well, remember there are some low-risk um, LSILs that are caused by HPV types that are not high-risk types, or you know, it could right. be some just more some different morphologic um, process that looks right. like low-grade lesion. Yep. Now, once you get to four percent the plan is to go to colposcopy. And then if you go up to around 25%, you either need to have extremely close surveillance or more likely treatment. So mm -hmm. those are gonna be some of the high grade lesions and so forth. One of the things with the genotyping is that if you have a high grade lesion on PATH and your HPV 16 positive, assuming that you're not planning on having more children, the idea is you can go straight to treatment without even doing colposcopy first. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very fascinating. And that was um, one of the last things I was working with with some of our clinicians was the colposcopy side of things and when to go to treatment. And I found it so fascinating. I was, I was lucky enough to sit in on a, quite a few um, lectures with um, how to do colposcopies and all of the different things to look at. So it was, it's, it's one of the highlights, I think, of my career to, to have been a part of that. So it was pretty cool. Um, so I know that it's a little hard to do um, without the magic of television here because we're just doing a podcast, but um, I'm hoping that we can um, kind of talk a little bit about a few um, options and a little shout out again, I'll follow up with that app that Diane was talking about. You can go to the ASCCP.org slash mobile dash app. Um, or it's also available on the Apple Store, Google Play, and other web applications. I'll tell you um, that the Apple Store that I got mine off of cost me about 10 bucks, um, but kind of well worth it to um, go through. And I will say that it beats going through all of those little flip chart algorithms that I used to do daily with my um, nurse practitioners back um, a few years ago. So I like the app quite a bit. So let's kind of jump into um, some scenarios. Right. Okay. So let's take an example of yeah. low grade just do a couple. Yeah. Low grade squamous intraepithelial and intraepithelial lesion or LCIL, which I can say more easily. Right. Yeah. So this case, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of times you used to do colposcopy. Okay. Yeah. So let's take a 35 year old 
her risk is going to change depending on whether what her previous results were. So you put in the fact that she's currently LSIL and you did HPV testing on, on her. In this case, we're not really using genotyping. We're just doing the, the high-risk cocktail. So she's currently HPV positive LSIL. Mm-hmm. If she has previous negative results that you have documented, previous co-test that was negative, we know that even though she's got LSIL now, she's got a relatively low risk because of that history. It's only 3.8%. So that falls under the 4% and she can come back at one year. However, if you knew that she was previously HPV positive, either her pap was negative or maybe it was ASCAS, um, something like that. And if you knew that she was previously HPV positive, her risk increases to 6%, which is over that 4% threshold and you right. would do colposcopy on her. So that's a good example of LCIL and how the risk changes. A really good example. And, and why knowing previous pap tests, um, I, I fear like for me, I don't know if I could remember what happened to me five years ago, but you know, I think it's all, that's where the, um, you know, kind of documentation is important. And I'm going back to the, my idea of those women that are going to different clinicians every time they're able to see one. So. Right. And we, you know, high grade, we can talk a little bit more about that. And yeah, let's, yep. But you know, the, the genotyping can be helpful there, but let's take an example. Some people are using you know, you have a low grade, but then you have some worrisome cells and some people have called those Mm -hmm. LSILH. Oh yeah. The preferred thing with Bethesda now is to call it low grade and to also call it atypical squamous cells can't exclude a high grade lesion. So there the most significant abnormality is ASCH. So we can plug that in. So let's take a 50 year old. Yeah. He has HPV positive ASCH. Right. and no previous cytology that you're aware of. So her risk of CIN3 is now 26%. You could do in a 50 year old, she's not gonna have any more children. Um, so you could do either colposcopy or treatment in that situation. Mm-hmm. Now for high grade lesions, genotyping can be important, especially for women that are not childbearing. So again, I think I mentioned, let's take like say a 40 year old. Yeah. And high grade lesion. And now at the VA, we're starting to offer genotyping um, because some of the clinicians would like to do immediate treatment. So if she is HPV 16 positive and she's 40 uh, with HCL, you're going to work, you can go right to treatment. Doesn't mean you have to, but you can go right to that excisional treatment because of the risk of CIN3 is now at 60%. Um, Mm -hmm. 18 is also very high risk. It's a little bit lower. So you would do either colposcopy or treatment. Same thing if, if it's another HPV type. Uh, what about that woman that's pregnant? Well, you're, you're not going to do immediate treatment, right? right. You're going right. to do colposcopy. And then we want to we look at what the biopsy, they, there's a biopsy that comes out. There is, you know, there's a lot of us were using just HCIL on biopsies too. And mm-hmm. I don't, I do cytology and hematology, so I don't do as much routine surgical pathology. But now the recommendation is to try to split out CIN2 from CIN3. Right. Yeah. A younger woman, it can make a difference. Absolutely. So you can, if she desires frequent 
a future pregnancy, you can follow someone with CIN2 on biopsy more conservatively. Um, but if it's CIN3, still there's a recommendation to treatment. Right. So, yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, this app is really nice. And I, I would I would wonder if clinicians aren't using it when they're talking to their patients um, when the colposcopy is an option, right? And and what the next steps might be, because if they would actually walk through it with their patients, I think they would, the patients might feel a little more um, empowered to make some decisions, especially those who might still be wanting to become pregnant or, you know, that they have some options. I, I, I do like this app quite a bit that um, I think it, serves a, right. a really nice purpose. Right. I agree. I mean, I don't do a lot of video games, but I could sit and do <laughs> scenarios. Um, right. Yeah. Mine if I wanted to, I, I actually haven't done that, but it's an idea. Yeah. So, I used anyway. to I do scenarios with my students a lot and now they would be able to cheat. So. <laughs> right. We have to make sure they don't take it into any certification. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, do you want to talk about any of the other scenarios or? Um... Well, we, we talked, we could talk a little bit about surveillance because that's. Oh, perfect. Yep. I forgot about that. Yeah, I was. Surveillance, you know, people were often left, you know, with previous guidelines, they knew, okay, we're going to do this, but then what do we do later? So there's a possibility to put in previous colposcopy results, um, previous PAP results. So let's, let's take an example. I, I, Great idea. Earlier, so in, in case I, so I didn't have to run through it on the app, but let's take a 45-year-old. <laughs> she, let's talk, she, she was originally diagnosed with both LCIL and ASCH on cytology. On colposcopy, the a biopsy was done and found CIN1. So they did not find a high-grade squamous lesions. So she's coming back for follow-up and her current, resu her current result is now low grade again, and it's HPV positive. So she's got a persistent lesion. They didn't mention ASCH, even though they didn't mention ASCH because of that previous history with that ASCH and, and so forth before, her mm -hmm. risk of a CIN3 or more is at 6.3% and you're gonna oh. recommend colposcopy again right, um, to make sure that you didn't miss a high grade lesion. So, um, now, um, one thing, you know, another thing that's really more clear is what do you do with someone who's been treated for a high-grade lesion? And yeah. it wasn't always clear in the past. Um, right. What if she's diagnosed at age 55 and treated, and now she's 65, does she still need to be screened? Well, the recommendation is to continue to follow women with treated high-grade lesions for 25 years, even if they've aged out, if they've yep. had a complete hysterectomy with removal of the cervix, you still need to keep following them. So initially it's quite um, often, it's like at six months initially, and then you start going to less frequent follow-up. So I think that's a really helpful aspect of the the guidelines in the app. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's what I find interesting about that that guideline of the 25 years of follow-up, these are all going to be women that, that we, we we were diagnosing in their late teens and twenties with high grade, right? So so there will be quite a few women that are still in that screening pool <laughs> that we can't forget about. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that's really important to get the word out because, yep. you know, I, for example, I don't necessarily routinely see a gynecologist anymore, but my primary care provider would really need to know if I had that history. I didn't have, I don't have that history, but it's really important to get that education out. Yeah. I've had quite a few people come to me that have had hysterectomies for um, non H cell reasons, fibroids or what have you, and come to me and say, I don't feel right. I feel like I should go get another one and another pap test. And I'm like, no, you don't need one. <laughs> you don't have to go see your primary care every year, but, but you don't need a pap test. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. So it is, it's a weird, it is a weird feeling, especially for those who have grown up with this kind of annual idea. But, but I always tell them they must see their, their primary care yearly if they can. So, okay. So I think um, maybe to kind of pull all this together, we can talk about some summary items that we've talked about um, with these guidelines. And I think first I'd like to say that, you know, the one thing I always like to say about cytology is that we have always been evolving. Um, and these guidelines are no different to what we're doing, right? Um, so I just think that we're going to continue to do that and that these guidelines were based on data that was gathered from around the globe. But when we're talking about them in terms of the American Cancer Society and ASCCP, we're talking about the United States. So, and that different countries have might have different reasoning behind their guidelines due to maybe, you know, their healthcare system or their lack of healthcare system, developing countries are going to be very different than, um, than um, countries like the United States. Um, we do have to remember that cervical cancer still is a, a big factor for a lot of women in developing countries. Um, and that these most recent changes are based on um, risks, not only for screening and how that might work, but also the treatment. And I think more importantly, the treatment. And I have to say that I think that these guidelines help cement the idea of those next steps of what comes next. Um, we also have to remember that um, these guidelines are guidelines and that they don't, they're not necessarily in the United States for all women, right? Um, that they don't fall perfectly. It's not a one size fits all. We would, we wish it could be, but it's not. So we do have to consider access. Awareness is the key. I think we've talked a lot about awareness today. Um, and that other risk factors are important in terms of immunosuppression, abnormal bleeding, discharge, bloating, other factors, other STIs um, might be in something that still kind of plays a role, but a little bit differently. As you said earlier, Diane, the idea of um, these HP vaccinations, we've made great strides. It's still going to be a little bit of a time before, you know, this, um, the HP vaccinations really cut down on most cervical cancers. But we have to remember that not all cervical cancers are HPV related. Um, oh, go ahead the vaccines don't cover every single HPV type. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So in terms of screening guidelines, um, if cervical screening is done infrequently, as you said, um, for right now, the best seems to be the most sensitive test, which would be the co-testing and bringing that morphology in. And from a quality 
assurance standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, being able to continue doing um, those cytohistocorrelations helps the patient, helps the lab, helps everybody in terms of, you know, kind of keeping all of those standards high. Um, so is there anything else you would like to say? I'm no, I done. think we <laughs> to work with everybody. Thanks so much, Michelle, yeah. for doing this. And I think we all need to be, you know, work with our providers, um, yeah. clinicians, be willing to educate the public as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there will be sort of a gradual shift. I know where I'm working, uh, there's still interest in doing co-testing. Uh, we hope that additional platforms are approved for primary screening. I, I'm sure that that's gonna happen at some point, but I think we are a valuable, uh, in our profession and AFC members and others listening are valuable mm -hmm. educational resource. And uh, we provide, you know, the ASCCP website in a lot of our PAP reports just to give more education as well. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much. Thank you. I think it's been very fun. And I'll say that one of the, one of my past ta um, most fun memories was working with clinicians and going to, basic, you know, community centers and talking to women and men about HPV testing and STI testing, we would bring a clinical lab person in. And so they got that idea. It was a very holistic way of looking at from a, a clinician standpoint and the laboratory standpoint. And I think that, you know, the public really gains from all of that. So thank you very much for being part of this. It was fun. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening to CytopathPod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at Cytopathology or via email at asc at cytopathology.org.